millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dare to be different in Yumiko's new Grace Velvet Collection. Introduced by Maria Kochakova, this brand new fabric is bold in color, singular in presence, and classic in style. As one of Yumiko's favorite ventures to date, the fabric subtly reflects light in its own way and exudes a spirit of confidence to inspire every dancer to find strength in their individuality. Shop the collection online at yumiko.com and in stores now. Don't forget to also check out the recently launched 2020 colors and monthly ready-to-wear options. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are joined by our friend, Kate Penner. Kate received her early dance training from Arlington Center for Dance, now Ballet Nova, in Arlington, Virginia, and participated in the Kennedy Center's Dance Theater of Harlem Residency Program and Exploring Ballet with Suzanne Farrell. She attended and graduated from Harvard University, where she worked with Heather Watts and Damien Wetzel, performing ballets such as George Balanchine's The Four Temperaments, Serenade, and Who Cares. Upon graduating, Kate has enjoyed a freelance career in the Boston area. Kate has taught ballet and math as a faculty member of both Boston Ballet School and Harvard's Department of Mathematics, and has been a part of the Vail Dance Festival team since the start of Damien Wetzel's tenure as artistic director in 2007. In this episode, we discuss the article from The Guardian in November 2019 that asks, Does ballet have a race problem? Kate offers her thoughts and reactions to this topic that has been at the forefront of discussion in the ballet world over the past few months. Thank you, Kate, for joining us on a Sunday. Uh, Thank you for having me. Nice Sunday so afternoon we're, we're, chat. Well, we're welcoming Kate Penner as a guest today. Kate and I first met in 2003 at the Suzanne Farrell Summer Program. Is that correct? That's right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so long, long ago at the Kennedy podca- Center. <laughs> this podcast is 17 years in the making. <laughs> and we're here. <laughs> I'm excited. Awesome. Well, let's just, um, we have some specific topics that we want to talk with you about today. But before we do that, we want to introduce our audience to you. So we want to hear a little bit just about uh, your background in ballet and about Suzanne Farrell's summer intensive, I guess, and then um, a little bit about what you're doing now. Sure. Can I I just as as a terrible man interrupt before Kate gets into this? (laughs) (laughs) I, I just wanted to say that, like, from Rebecca on my side, like Kate, has been working at the Vail Dance Festival for a very long time. And part of the reason why we would love, we've been wanting to have Kate on, which we talked about last summer, right? Yeah, I we think, did. Like, we briefly, just didn't, yeah. we didn't have the time, but like, I just think you're such a, a fiercely intelligent person with a, like, you know, very specific detailed opinions about ballet, but such a world beyond that. So that is for our listeners. This is a big reason why we wanted to have you on. So that's, Yeah. Thank so I just so needed to, to interrupt you first. <laughs> That's okay. I'll take it. It's allowed. Um, 
I would say my origin story in ballet is very typical in that it began with like a tape of the original Broadway cast of Cats. Yeah, I did a lot of, you know, contact improv as entertainment to make shows for my family. And they were like, God, we need to get her some lessons Uh, so that she stops doing this. So, yeah, I started when I was five at a small school in the D.C. area. And then very similar to everyone, I had a sort of a children's ballet mistress type of like I wasn't the ballet mistress but I was part of the children's <laughs> cast with the Joffrey Nutcracker when they toured to the Kennedy Center and oh. had this like taste of a large production and like that was it you know that was like the thing that made me want to do this for real now of course when you're nine you have no idea what that really means yeah <laughs> but you're just like whatever it takes I'm gonna do it right um and so you know continued dancing through middle school and high school Met Michael at Suzanne's uh, summer program at the Kennedy Center, which is really one of the most intense experiences I really ever had. Like summer programs are usually very like balanced in the sense that you're doing ballet and modern and jazz and theater dance and Pilates. And this is not that. Um, (laughs) It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. And I would say those three weeks I like, barely had any time to digest it while it was happening because between like the classes that you're taking with her and the sort of brief work that she's putting together, it's really hard to keep everything in your mind all at once. And that was also my first serious introduction to balancing technique. Mm -hmm. So I was, Oh, I showed up in not freed point shoes for the audition. I'm not going to say (laughs) what brand I had because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, And, and, I, and we I know how Kate just, feels about anything other than Freed now. Oh, I'm a full convert. I'm like, you can't talk me out of anything like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just really was trying to like soak up as much as I could. And um, that's one of those programs that you just keep like chewing on the morsels that she gives you for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. In high school, in addition to Suzanne's program, I participated in the Dance Theater of Harlem's residency program at the Kennedy Center, where I had the opportunity to study with Mr. Mitchell and many of the wonderful staff and faculty at DTH, and did a lot of Kennedy Center programming through the Masterclass series, too. So I went to college. I went to uh, Harvard University. And happened to overlap with Damian Wetzel and his wife, Heather Watts, when he was here um, as a student getting a master's degree at the Kennedy School. And so his two years that he spent here were my junior and senior years. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that Heather was doing a lot in the dance department, I was like, well... I guess I am. I had at that point moved to the dance team. I was really just like experimenting with everything. And so I came back to the dance department in earnest and was just thrilled to be able to learn so much from her. Um, We worked on Serenade. We learned she did this entire class, which was advanced ballet technique and repertory. And to get to learn pieces of everything from like rubies to agon to Mm -hmm. like Union Jack, it was really like. just I look back on it and think this that was amazing it was crazy yeah um and I started going to Vail that first year that he was the artistic director Mm -hmm. and since then uh, my 20s I spent doing a freelance career in the Boston area doing lots of Nutcracker and you know some other works too like being in operas and musical theater and just trying my hand in everything And at the same time, I started teaching math. And I think teaching to me is very similar. I teach ballet as well, a lot to adult learners, but also to young people. And I think teaching is very similar in both of those disciplines. But the big thing that sort of has guided me is that in ballet, the emotional approach is really important. Like you show up every day and you don't expect immediate observable progress. Mm-hmm. You just come and you try your hardest and you have faith in the process. And I wish that more people did that in everything else that they do. 
the way that people approach studying ballet. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! So if that's sort of like me in a nutshell, I guess. What made you start teaching math? Was that was there something like obviously you're very good at it, <laughs> but um, you know, like what was the you know origin yeah, of that? I had a really good math teacher in middle school, and then I had a really miserable time in math when I got to college, <laughs> and made me feel like it wasn't for me and I really couldn't do it. And I returned to math because I thought I maybe wanted to go into economics. Mm -hmm. And I just like had a moment where I thought about how I was approaching things. It wasn't a super efficient way of studying. So I adjusted my approach and I found some more success. And I thought, wow, that like really demoralizing experience I had really wasn't reality. And I wish Mm -hmm. more people had that opportunity that they had a more supportive person in the classroom. Uh So when opportunities started to present themselves, I just thought, yeah, I can help people not have this extremely traumatizing math experience. (laughs) That would be great. That that's about as close to fixing my own path as I can get. So that that was what first led me into it. That's awesome. And I also kind of think the same is true with ballet. When I watch, you know, a lot of my friends are starting to dabble in teaching. Like I watch you guys teach master classes. And I think so much of what we do as we start to develop our own style of teaching is finding the people who really motivated us and trying to like combine that with the opposite of the people who tried to demotivate us. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. You are preaching to the choir here on that. (laughs) Like that is, but I, I don't think that many people think that I hope that more do, maybe I'm being pessimistic, but I know a couple of people offhand that I think are just going to perpetuate the same things, like the same, I don't want to call it like a cycle of abuse, but it's I like, mean, sometimes, <laughs> you know, in or, the worst instances, I mean, there is a generation of people that say, if you think this is bad, let me tell you what I experienced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just, I, my rule of thumb for that is like, if, if something you disliked ultimately worked in your favor like you know nobody wants to hold their leg up for 16 counts um but you know my maybe that builds strength or whatever like a heart you know like if things that are difficult but ultimately rewarding you know are are there like i'll include them but if things are just unnecessarily cruel and they don't reward you unless you're like a very specific like i think you know like maybe five percent of the population I call it like the, I mean, uh, Sarah Mearns is great. I think it, uh, she's fantastic, but she's like the person that comes to mind where I think like she's the kind of person that if you tell her, like she, she will double down if you're like, this isn't going to work. You're not going to, you're not going to yeah. be able to do it. Like you just um, had food poisoning the day before your Swan Lake debut and you're 19 years old and you've never done a principal part and you know probability says this is not going to go super well. Right. So then, but then she's just like, mind, her mind is a steel trap and she's just like, I will show you wrong and um, she'll do it. But for me, I would be like, yep. Okay. Sure. Bye. You're right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I actually always really liked the teachers that told me like, Oh, this isn't right. Or you can't do this. Like I wanted to show them like that always worked for me, but I don't like, I can't do that. I know you're trying to say you're just, just Sarah Mearns. No, but I'm just saying like, I like that as a teacher. And then when I got into my career, I was like, this is terrible. And then like, as a teacher, I can't make that work. Like I, it's, like, you have to be mean. And I'm just like, I feel bad. I can't be mean. <laughs> well, I, know I do it, think you have to, like, have a really close relationship with your students and know what people need to hear and when they need to hear it. Yes. 100%. It's, it's about understanding. And that's the thing, too, especially working with kids. What age uh, are you working with, Kate, when you're teaching math? I am usually working with first and second year students. So somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 to 19 years old. Right. So it's the same. They've it's like definitely the been in a lot of classrooms before. Right. Right. But it like, how does that, it's like going back to that time too, because there's so many complex things happening at that age too, yeah. you know, and like making sure <laughs> you say the right things and yeah. So I find that 
a challenge too. We got derailed mm. for like one second, but I did want to talk about um, what your role is in Vail at the Vail Dance Festival because I think everyone will identify with that because they've seen your work year after and they year. Oh no! And they don't even know. <laughs> um, I manage Vail's social media, even back before Facebook had business pages. I you could make a personal page, yeah. but just turn it into a business, like have the name be Vail Dance Festival. So mm-hmm. I asked Damien if I could do that. And so I think I started the first Vail Facebook page in like 2008. Oh my God. And I've been there almost every year, except for I think 2011 and 2013. Uh-huh. And yeah, from 2014 to now, I've been, that's been my main focus of getting everyone who's not in Vail, Colorado with us some (laughs) photos and video and experiences that are as close to the real thing as possible. You do such an awesome job. I love it. As someone who manages social media myself, I always have thought you've done such a great job. And it's so funny to think how that job has changed from 2008 to now. It probably used to be like, oh, I post like, you know, a couple times during the festival. Now you're like, I post 8 million times. (laughs) And I have to do stories and Instagram and Twitter. And there's so much happening. We were just talking about like, what is TikTok? Um, (laughs) Yeah, Kate and I... (laughs) I posted something like I was like, wow, when you're a social media manager and I guess you have to figure out what TikTok is. And then Kate I responded, don't know what TikTok is. Well, Kate and I are worried that we're going to have to figure this out. For you you 100% are. Yeah. It's the, the yes, thing. That's correct. Have you figured this it out, Kate? Yes. Okay. Luckily, as, as I mentioned, I was surrounded by 17 to 19 oh, year olds. And one of them it, that I work with has told me that she is working on becoming a TikTok star. And I was oh, like, we need to talk. We need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I look That's forward good. to speaking with you about that then in Vail because I think I'm going to need some help in that department. Like I get it's just there's too many options. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't have anything to TikTok about. <laughs> That's my problem. That's correct. <laughs> this is how far behind I am. It was like I was telling my kids one day, I was just like, yeah, I don't so far behind on, you know, I'm not very social media savvy anymore. Like, and I also like, honestly, I never even learned how to do Twitter. And they were like, we don't know how to do that either. It's, it's like old. Twitter is, it's yeah, it's that old. Like, they're just like, are you kidding me? We don't do t- Twitter. What's I Twitter? Know. I love it. Dark. Dark. <laughs> All right. That's when you know you're getting older. I know. Trying to stay with the times, but it just happens so fast. We can do it. We We can do it. We'll stick together and help each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. Teamwork makes the dream work. That's right. Speaking of staying with the times, (laughs) here we go. All right. We're going to dive in. in. Yeah. This, we wanted to bring up, um, you know, a little while ago, there was an article in the guardian called black Blackface and Fu Manchu mustaches. Does ballet have a race problem? And Rebecca and I have been talking about this since what the article came out. Did it come out in November? So it's yeah, you know yeah, fairly November. recent. And but of course you know there have been a, we've brought up on other podcasts um, talking about. I think we we brought up Gina uh, and Phil Chan, Gina Pascogan and Phil Chan's um, uh, what their initiative. I think it's called uh, Last Bow for Yellowface. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, ballet, this, on the face of it, this this title in itself is kind of ridiculous because it, it should be called Does Ballet Have a, a Race Problem? It should just be Blackface and Fu Manchu Mustaches, Ballet's Race Problem. Um, yes. But they answered Kate, the question right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but, uh, you know, we, we wanted someone else to come on whose opinion we value and trust. And since we've been wanting you on for so long, Kate, it just feels, this feels like a, a right topic to, you know, have your um, thoughts and intelligence um, on the pod for. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's get into the, the article a little bit. Um, primarily, it's, uh, they, they talk a lot about Petrushka, which has um, character the more who, uh, you know, it's just steeped in uh, racial stereotypes from around turn of the century. But Petrushka premiered in 1911. And um, so that sort of like blackface minstrel type performance was fairly common. But 
obviously a hundred years plus later is deeply offensive and problematic. Yet some people are trying to say that this is um, history and you don't want to erase history. Um, and there's a line somewhere. So let's just, let's just start uh, with the, like the first issue. <laughs> Should anyone be doing blackface in ballet today? Ooh. Um, <laughs> I, it's a redundant so, question, but... <laughs> I am fairly confident the answer is no, but I do want to <laughs> sort of give the broader context that the art form is in a position where it's featuring and reproducing work that was made in the mid 19th century right. as part of its contemporary offerings. Like when you sit down to like buy your tickets for a season, sort of unusual in the landscape of performing arts, you're looking at things that have been done since for the last almost 200 years, but presented as if this is just like a casual Saturday night. Right. And I think like that's, that's part of the problem. Yeah. Like if you think about it, like, if what if we solely, uh, if, if, if uh, let's say, like, in film, if we did seasons of films, you know, and, um, you know, a lot of, like, Hollywood's bread and butter was just showing movies from the 30s, which is still, you know, later than a lot of what we're talking about for ballet. Like, yeah. that would be, there would be a lot of stuff that is deeply problematic or troubling to an audience of 2020 and needed to be dealt with and couldn't just be like well this is history you know exactly and i think a lot of the parallels that are brought up in defense of this saying this is history we're presenting history when you think about the actual experience you have going to the ballet nobody feels like it's history everyone is up there yeah yeah Everyone is up there. They're in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. Everyone's dressed in their finest in the audience. No one stops at intermission to talk about how quaint this historical view is or how <laughs> offensive it is or how this is not how we think about things now. It is you go, you sit, you watch, and you say how wonderful the production is. It's like no one is really engaging with it, or at least I have never experienced a night at the ballet where people are saying this is a historical representation of mm -hmm. whatever you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Well, I found it interesting in the article, too. They were talking about um, Kevin O'Hare was saying that for his works or he would put notes in the program that ex explained it. But like how many people are really reading that and how many people are reading it, even if it just said the date in there? Like a lot of people are just kind of missing those sorts of items too, I think, you know, so it's, well, how it, deep it, are I, people going into this, you know? I think that that's like well-intentioned. And I think one thing right. that comes up repeatedly in, in terms of like saving art that is problematic or troubling, but still worth preserving, you know, um, is that people always talk about context and like in including in this article the guardian article uh, someone who really puts their foot in their mouth jean-christophe mayo um brings up the issue of context he then goes on to say some you know rather troubling things that we can get into but um what does that even mean like who what who's offering context and what what would that look like like what is an appropriate amount of context for something that is uh, perhaps peddling either racist or misogynistic tropes from a bygone era. Yeah, I think what's sort of bizarre to me about this conversation <clears throat> is that when Mayo says, well, this is like going to the Louvre and looking at a painting, mm. And that I understand that it's an old viewpoint. And so the like these things have their context in history. Well, the ballet world is really not substantially experimenting with giving things context. Mm -hmm. I've 
I think I go to the ballet more, much more often than the average person. I've never really read a program note that sought to give context to what you're viewing. If anything, the program notes are like, this is what's happening on the stage. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because Story. not everyone is like fluent in classical mime. Right. Um, and I've never read anything except for one program note last season at a mixed rep performance of Boston Ballet that had depicted sexual assault and it listed essentially a trigger warning in the program mm-hmm. that there was mature content featured in the piece that uh, we were about to see. But I've never, other than that, I've never seen anything indicate any sort of value judgment or, you know, detail given to it. So it was very strange to me to have him talk about, well, obviously there's this context and I'm like, but no one is trying to offer it. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you're in the Louvre, there's a, you can read about the context and (laughs) what's going on. And it's also clearly something stuck in time. That's the thing. And even movies and things like that, it is, you know, if they're in black and white, you know, it's like, feels like a moment in time but here are people in front of you live performances happening you know so it just completely changes the dynamic right there I completely agree Mm -hmm. and no one is really saying anything along the lines of this is wrong or I disagree with this Uh, quite the contrary it's like Look at these new costumes. Look at this new updated version of this 19th century story about slaves, pirates, black people, Asian Mm -hmm. people, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, So we really aren't. It's strange to read a rationale or like a defense given when the ballet world has clearly not really embraced that approach to presenting these works at all. We will return to Conversations on Dance in a moment, but first, this week we are sponsored by our good friends at Vayette Virtual Ballet School, the next stage of ballet training. Vayette Virtual Ballet School is a -a one-of-a-kind online ballet classroom providing world-class ballet training to aspiring students regardless of their location. Vayette Virtual Ballet School believes that teaching proper technique is just as important as nurturing the mental, physical, and emotional aspects of their students. Fayette Virtual Ballet School is an extra push that you need heading into your upcoming audition, competition, or summer intensives. For more information, visit VayetteVirtualBalletSchool.com. That's V-E-Y-E-T-T-E VirtualBalletSchool.com. Or click the link in the description of this episode. So, so one thing that's interesting that comes up in the Guardian article, and I'd like your thoughts on this, is so what is um, what is a, an option? So there's an option to maybe find a way to create context. Maybe we can talk about ways we could do that. But also, are there ways that th- that stories could be tweaked? Because they have to be. I mean, I'm sure they're thinking a lot of this from the money point of view that these are big box office sellers, you know. So then, what happens from their perspective, like these people in charge, they're thinking that they want to keep all this in, but there are ways that things could be tweaked, can be changed, can be modernized, like you're saying, other than just costumes. I agree. I think so. I agree with your point that what else do we do other than a program note and tweaking? Mm -hmm. One piece of it is that with a lot of the works that they're mentioning, um, when we're talking about Levi Adair, when we're talking about Oh, the Nutcracker. Changes to those pieces. And I think the Nutcracker is an important ballet to discuss in this a bit because it's not as overt as something like Labaya Dare's dances, but it's something that we've all participated in fairly uncritically from a very young age. And we Mm -hmm. need to think about that. There are quick changes that can be made that won't wholesale destroy the heart and very much of the ballet. Um, the specific dance that Misty Copeland brought up um, in La Bayadere is so small that most Western and North American companies don't present it at all. Mm. Um, and Kate, but it's, it's tradition. 
(laughs) (laughs) But to the point, like, you know, it's not, the main characters are not presented. The main characters are normalized around the culture of Petapa. The main characters are European. The main characters are not going to appear in yellow face, black face. Right. Will be presented with this air of, um, royalty and majesty and they are the idealized version of masculine and feminine at that time in the home culture mm-hmm. and so the pieces that we're talking about that are offensive are frequently involved in divertisements that are in a particular act or sheer sort of like entertainment you're presenting a culture that's reductive and it's like exotic and it's how mm-hmm. The European culture viewed another culture in the mid 19th century. So I'm not like, why can't we change it? It's a small piece of it. And Mm -hmm. these things have been changed. It's not like we've been immaculately conserving them for 150 years. We've been changing them substantially basically since Petapa died um, throughout the 20th century. And now all of a sudden, like, we've decided we need to be the perfect conservators of this art. I agree 100%. And I think it's like, you can go back to um, things that don't have any racial implications. But like, Alistair told us, and something that I found surprising, but Danilova was doing uh, black swan potata and a scarlet tutu all through the 40s. Like the black swan potata that you think of as so iconic and right. integral to Swan Lake as we know it did not exist until halfway through the 20th century. But it's just because we don't have that personal um, historical Connection knowledge it. and yeah. it's presented as some sort of deep tradition um, when really that's just not factually true. Yeah. It's and I was sort of googling around to. It's interesting. So to your point, saying we we don't have this visibility, we don't have this understanding of how things have been changing, sort of over the long term. So I was trying to look and investigate and see how much these ballets have been changing, and the answer is like a huge amount, Mm -hmm. especially at the start of the 20th century with the Russian Revolution. About Mm -hmm. two thirds of the Imperial Ballet at that point had left Russia or I should call it the Soviet Union at that time. And as a result, the ballets as they were being presented needed to completely change in how they were presenting the culture, in how they were putting, you know, presenting the art form to audiences. So there was this enormous shift in how Petipa's ballets were even being put on and how they were being danced. And that's on like a broad scale, let alone those moments where they were like, well, this illustrious ballerina took on this role so they just like highlighted and deleted all the choreography and like remade it for her right, so right. there are echoes of the political change echoes of the social change that have happened to different ballets throughout all of russia and the soviet union's history and the idea that now in 2020 it's like we can't change this one super offensive dance or something like that or it just doesn't bear out. That is not Mm -hmm. how Russia has approached conserving ballet at all for the last Mm -hmm. 150 years. This is a choice that they're making. Yeah. It's interesting you said that about the choreography too, because I was just sitting here thinking like, as the three of us, we feel very passionately about Balanchine ballets. And um, when we learn a Balanchine ballet or see a Balanchine ballet, there's, we work so hard to preserve the choreography, right? To keep it like the steps exactly the same. The arm is here. There's so much of that within the Balanchine tradition, I feel like. And then there's like when you do a classical ballet or a pedipot, it's like, oh, you don't want to do the turn to the right? Well, here's like 18 other versions you can do. Like there's already been so much that has been totally changed and shifted in terms of the choreography. So you know, like, what's the difference? Completely agree. Yeah. I've had so many conversations with Heather Watts about this, and she observed that it was sort of like the second he died, everything just froze, froze in place. In time. Yeah. And the approach to how they're being conserved is completely different. And it's not that we're strangers to why that has happened, right. but it's so interesting to think about before then. And in particular, you can take like one ballet that he staged so many times, like Apollo, so many different versions. Right. 
in how it was presented, how many mm-hmm. sections do you have? Do you have the birth? Do you not have the birth? Do you have a big set? Do you have big costumes? Is it black right. and white ballot? Like it's just so many changes. But then the second his life was over, it's like this is this is the version. Right. This is the one version. Right. Um, right. Whereas it was a metamorphosizing it, like piece of art that he was tweaking and constantly working on throughout right. his professional life. Yeah, he wanted it to be shifting and changing and changing with the times too. Yeah, exactly. And it's just it's a very strange conversation to have where the things that people are saying in defense of some of these pieces just doesn't make sense in how mm-hmm. the life of this particular piece of art. Um though Petrushka is very challenging, right? I think they were talking in this particular Guardian article about the character of the Moor, as Michael, you were saying before, and how do you manage going from, okay, if we're not doing blackface, what do we do? Do we do no makeup? Do we do clearly a mask that is black? Do mm-hmm. we do, I think they decided like two cheek circles yeah. that were black and that <laughs> they felt frustrated because there was even pushback on like the two cheek circles. And I don't, I don't know if there's like a one fix that will solve all of the problems with it, but I think we just keep iterating and trying different things until it settles into the repertory um, Mm -hmm. in a way where people feel like the problematic nature of the ballet is being acknowledged, the overtly offensive pieces are being removed as much as they can without changing, like removing the character, for instance, like not doing that since it's a central character to Petrushka. Mm -hmm. And I think from a young age, at least I remember being told about Petrushka when I was in my early teens, I had no critical ability to evaluate what this ballet was about. I mean, I couldn't even evaluate what the Nutcracker was doing when it presented all these different countries and nations. Right. I and think we about have that. An obligation to think about that. I Go ahead. I totally no. I I again. I don't mean to interrupt you at all. <laughs> I'm just no, merely impassioned like because I th- I am agreeing. Like it's just like when you're young, you just don't have the cognitive ability to digest these things. Like I loved Gone with the Wind because it's beautiful. It's scored beautifully. Vivian Lee is an amazing, inspiring figure and it just like when you watch that when you're seven and you're told oh this is the biggest movie of all time and it's like you know won every oscar under the sun and it's just like this great historical cinematic masterpiece like am i thinking of it critically before i'm even 10 years old no i'm just like vivian lee and um clark gable are amazing and this like romanticized vision of the south you know, I didn't think of it in any which way, like that it's basically propaganda. Yes. And, um, you know, that wasn't explained to me. Like, that's why I'm talking about where is context coming in was Turner classic movies like before they showed it when I'd watch it. I I feel like they showed it like every Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember them saying anything. I don't, uh, I don't think they added that. They were not like, by the way, here's what you're really watching. And, you know, like, and maybe at the time it was like Hattie McDaniel, she was the first African-American, uh, I think, person, uh, definitely woman, first African-American woman to win an Oscar in 1939. She won it playing a mammy figure, yeah. which is a trope. But, um, you know, it's like it's still at the time was doing some sort of like forward movement. It's just like. 80 years later is so tone deaf and needs context. Um, So that's what I think of when I, when I, when we're we're talking about these sorts of situations, it's like, of course, gone with the wind doesn't deserve to die forever. It's just less relevant and needs more, um, you know, context surrounding it than something like the wizard of Oz, which is just great 80 years later. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I think your point about not having context from a very young age is really astute 
And maybe that's what we need to start doing as a ballet community. I just think you look at the Nutcracker, the entire second act, most people frequently comment that, oh, there are countries and cultures that are pretty faithfully represented in the divertisements. Mm -hmm. And then there are ones that are not, that are given a very reductive, very um, sensationalist, uh, like very exotic. I'm talking about Arabian and I'm talking about Chinese Mm -hmm. um, treatment in the second act. But as a small child, that, that ballet becomes an annual part of your life so quickly. And you're focused on learning the technique and like getting the best part or whatever it may be. And this ballet just becomes like the wallpaper for your life. You don't even stop to like pull it out and compare it to what your other views of society might be. It, it almost just like disappears in your own critical thinking process as you're developing in other ways as mm-hmm. a human in the world until you're much older and maybe you have a friend or yourself where you're like, oh, all of a sudden this feels a little bit weird. The costume I'm wearing feels weird. The steps I'm doing feel weird. The makeup I'm putting on might feel weird. And I think we need to start being a little more willing to have these conversations. They're not world ending. They're important. Like the goal is for us as a community to make progress. Right. And it's not like we're saying, get rid of it all, throw it away, never do it again. We're just saying, you know, is there a better way to represent this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think, like, I think I've heard some people be upset. Like, for instance, George Balanchine's Nutcracker recently, most companies have made the decision to rid the Chinese dance of certain stereotypes. And yeah. then I, but I have heard people complain about it. And I'm like, you're that triggered by the fact that the Chinese dance literally has no pointy fingers in it now? Like, that's it. Like, they're just, like, angry. Like, they feel like a tradition, quote-unquote, like, what they were attached to, you know, it, it's it's gone or lost. But it's just, like, the steps are all still there. Mm-hmm. Like, you needed pointy fingers to, to complete this vision for you. It just yeah. seems silly. I think some of what people are reacting to is the mask being removed from their eyes sort of Mm -hmm. like yes a tradition is being taken away but you're being told that like the last 20 years that you've been watching this ballet it really had a lot of content in it that was not okay that was offensive and that you participated in it right you danced it or you clapped for it and you were like cool with it and so it feels much more comfortable to just keep on doing it the exact same way because in that scenario you can pretend like everything is fine no one's feelings are hurt by this and this is great but when you start making changes it does say i acknowledge that what was going on was not okay Mm -hmm. and that's sort of like fragility in whoever is sort of reacting to that like why are you holding on to that so closely is it because you don't want to be told that you unknowingly perpetuated some of these stereotypes or endorsed them or found humor in them or were entertained by them would you rather just continue sitting there watching those and not think that they're a problem even though they are um or you know do you want to do that or do you want to like update it and have more people feel like they could sit in the audience and not be offended because right now the path forward seems like we're saying I care to sell tickets to certain people and not to others. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think uh, it, it is just people, you know, we, of course, we, we all feel an attachment, like a nostalgia for things that we feel attached to, rather. Yeah. And so I think people take it personally in a way, like you taking uh the yellow face in chinese personally is a false equivalency to actual asian people who feel offended by it exactly I, obviously you know we're 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 talking about Bally's race problem but i i do think 
that at least in some small ways we are making progress and you've seen um, major companies start major initiatives to try to be more inclusive and to reflect the diversity of their communities. New York City Ballet this year for the first time ever has four African-American ballerinas. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out that's interesting when you look at the roster, they have, um, I think it's like 14 men that um, are people of color and then only six women. And I think that that's something that you'll find through most companies. It's a lot easier for male minorities to find work rather than women. And like, what is this gender disparity? Why does it happen? And are we, you know, are, is the ballet world doing enough to move past that? Because mm -hmm. even just think about like when I, you know, if I th think about when I was at SAB in New York City Ballet, there were, um, you know, at least I'd say four or five black men in the company, but it was one black woman every generation, you know? Yeah. It was... Um, Debbie Austin and Andre Long and Aisha Ash and like they, none of those women overlapped with each other I don't think you know or would have been like a year or two in there so but there were always for men it was easier and is that just because it's easier for men in general um, or it, you, do you think ballet is um, specifically directly less inclusive to women of color and for a specific reason? That is such a good question. Um, I would say I think there it's hard for everyone to get to the levels that we're talking about. It's very hard for people of color to get to the levels that we're talking about. Even with the initiatives, I think there is this implicit bias that happens at all levels when you think about, you know, from a young age, which children's parents get pulled aside to have communicated to them like, hey, your child has a lot of talent and ability. They should do this summer program or they should go to this teacher. Or they should leave this studio and go to this other school. Um I think we need to be, as a community, much more observant about who we track and who we're most encouraging of, mm -hmm. who we're the quickest to sort of dismiss and say, oh, that person, like, doesn't have a future in the art form or, you know, there's a common approach in teaching ballet that you should be able to identify someone who will develop into a potential professional at, like, the age of eight. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And I think that's a problem that compounds with how we train women, because as a young girl being raised in the art form, you're specifically told that there someone will replace you if you do anything wrong. Right. Yeah. If you are if you don't know the choreography, if you aren't good enough, if you, you know, have a bad attitude, if you're late. If you don't look you're right with the music or to rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you don't look correctly, yeah. it's just like you're told that there are a million people behind you who will take your spot and do it just as well as you. Right. And to some degree, girls are also treated that way. You know, there is the bar is very, very, um, I'm not going to say high because it's high for everyone. I'll say that it's just there's a high level of intolerance for anyone who doesn't fit a particular aesthetic or narrative mm -hmm. or approach or attitude or something. And I, my guess would be that these things sort of compound and it becomes very difficult to support, to find people who have persisted because of all these barriers along the way. Because... Right. You know, I work at Boston Ballet School. They do have some students who come up through the school into their pre-professional program, but a lot of people are auditioning in from outside. And so this is a big cultural problem that I think needs to be addressed at like every little school so that by the time they get to a larger like school that you're feeding into, 
that you haven't already lost a bunch of people, which is exactly mm-hmm. what's happening. Cause you go to the auditions and already the, the diversity is not there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's better than it was today, but you can tell that the bulk of the diversity has already been lost. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and I, I also, you know, something that obviously Misty has offered so much of, it's just like seeing yourself in yeah. key figures in a respect in any respective world. Like, you know, if I were a football player, I don't know any gay football players, <laughs> but if there was, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm, but like that person would be my person that I'd be like, you know what, this person did it and I can do that. Right. And visibility being important. And so I think that is one thing that's like, like, yes, like just for itself, it's great to have a broader range of diversity, but then also what's happening to the next generation because of that. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Like I, I think, um, so we had Monica Stevenson on the podcast that's what I was just going to say. Um, I and loved what Monica, she said. Monica Stevenson, the associate head of school at the Washington Ballet, um, she saw a girl on the street who was feeling very inspired um, after a performance of, was it Harlequin? What did we see? Uh, I don't remember what it was that yeah, time. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, and it was just this adorable little African American girl who obviously had oodles of talent. And she was like dancing on the street with her mom. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the (laughs) fact that Monica could go up to her as a black woman and say, like, I think you have potential for this thing that I do. I think that means a lot. Like, if I don't know, like, I just didn't have. I mean, not I know that there are different experiences, but like if I had had more specifically openly gay role models, it would have been a deeply impactful for me. So I think mm-hmm. that like, sure, if like, uh, you know, a really nice white lady came up to that kid, maybe it would work out too. But the fact that Monica could do that, I think has a lot of power to it. Yeah. And she understood the importance yeah. of doing that too. And when we had her on the podcast too, she also works at the, um, the Southeast campus for Washington school of ballet. And she, um, just had, we were talking about similar issues and she was saying how just making it available, to these dancers, which is really what she's all about and what that Southeast campus is all about is allowing more opportunities and making it um, economically feasible for families then allows them to start moving up. And they're doing lots of work with, um, I think, wasn't she saying, Michael, that when you get to like the advanced levels and you go to the actual campus of the Washington school of ballet, those kids are like on full scholarship almost like it's like their priority to make that more accessible to them. And then that allows them Kate, like you're saying to then continue to move through the ranks and keep moving on. But if it, you know, it, you, it's so you're at such a young age, you have to be able to decide if you're going to continue or not, or be able to continue or not. You know, this isn't like a decision in your twenties. It's like when you're eight, like you said, so there's, you know, that's a thing too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we also have an issue of just how expensive the art form is. There are a lot of other barriers, but to Michael's point, there are more men of color than women of color in the highest levels. And my sense is you can see that through, you know, second companies, apprenticeships, pre-professional divisions. So it's happening at some point. And this like attrition, this loss of bringing in talent and cultivating it. And I would just be, we've got to find it. She's in a good position though, to your point, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. like that is really, really important to get people early and then keep them in. Right, exactly. And give them and like, it's a big priority for them to talk to the parents to nurture them in other ways other than just bringing them in and give, you know, giving them class. And so it just sounds like such cool work that they're doing there and, you know, can continue to impact all these things that we're discussing today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I, I think, think go oh, go ahead. Ahead. you go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say it's when once you have like 
brought someone in and you're cultivating their talent and cultivating their ability, returning to our original topic, it's very challenging and difficult to then feature repertory in the parent company or in a company that's coming to your city that portrays that person's culture as, you know, minstrelsy or a mockery or like they're a little clown. And there's, that is the misfire that ballet offers to people who are from other cultures. Right. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense to be like, we want to increase diversity, but we're not going to change. We're also preserving this extremely problematic art form. One hundred percent. Yeah. Pieces. But I think you know. I, I I guess it's not all. Not all hope is not lost. Like things are moving in the right direction. But it's just like you see, like the not like a, it's like let's say twenty dancers at New York City Ballet are people of color, which is wonderful. But it's a like almost a hundred member company, and that it just doesn't yet reflect the demographics of New York City itself. Um, but it kind of yeah. reminds me how, you know, Congress has more women than ever before. And it was this really exciting moment. But, oh, wait, it's still like 100 women out of 400. And so that's half of, you know, what women make up in the actual population. So we just still have a lot of work to do. We do. But I think having a conversation like this one is part of the evidence that shows that things are moving in a good direction. Because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, this conversation, if it was happening, it certainly wasn't happening in sort of like a public forum Mm -hmm. that we still remember. Um, For a long time, it was just like, this is what we're presenting. Mm -hmm. And no no one asked any questions and no one really said very much um, that has at least stayed in, you know, newspaper articles or sort of the official record of people pushing back against these performances. Mm-hmm. And I think as it's it ballet is such a strange art form to be a part of. There's like a whole faction that's very convinced that the art form is dying. And yeah. then there's like a bunch of other people that are like, no, but look like dance on TV is doing really well. And then it's like, how do you hold all these things in your mind? Plus this other faction that's like, well, my job is to conserve this like very ancient relatively viewpoint of the world as it's portrayed in these story ballets Mm -hmm. and I think it really depends on what you want to depict and what you want to put forward and who you want to have in your audience and if your goal is to include as many people as possible that means that these problematic portrayals like shouldn't exist and these conversations need to happen on the path to that place right yeah I think that's a great note to end on. We took a whole hour of your time. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure that we will get you back on in Vale 2020. I'm excited. Um, yes. It was such a pleasure having you. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Kate. It was great to have you. Thank right. you. Talk soon. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 